Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 14. James 2 and 14. Hear the word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical deeds, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, Great. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Good morning. Can I encourage you to uh, get a a pew Bible and turn to James chapter 2 with me this morning? We're looking at verses 14 to 26 uh, this morning. So let me give you a moment to just uh, check up James chapter 2. It's our third uh, sermon in in a series that we'll be looking at over the summer months. And we've now come to this passage which is entitled Works and Faith or Faith and Works. So let me pray for us as we look at this passage in James chapter 2 this morning. Father, we thank you this morning that your word is a searching word, that it searches our hearts and our lives, it searches our minds and our attitude. And Father, as we come to James chapter 2 this morning, we pray for your Spirit's enabling as we seek to understand this passage, as we seek to apply it to our lives. May we leave this place being challenged, encouraged, and having met with yourself through your word, we pray. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The vicar stood up, his footsteps echoed on the marble as he walked towards the podium. He paused for a moment before beginning the tribute to the man who had passed away, and he said the following, Jack was a good man who worked hard all his life. He loved his family, and he was also a man of great faith. Later that day, the dead man's son approached the vicar and said to him calmly and respectfully, Vicar, my dad was a good man, but if he had a faith, we never saw any of it. That story raises all sorts of questions about faith, doesn't it? What kind of faith do we claim to have? Does your faith demonstrate itself? Can we know the difference between a dead and useless faith and a saving and obedient faith? Because James this morning is dealing with question of faith here in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And he starts off with this first heading of mine, which is faith without deeds is dead. Do you see it there in verse 14? He's asking those Christians, he's writing to Christians, asking them, writing, saying to them, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? What benefit is there in claiming to have a faith when there's no evidence for it? What good is it to believe in God and yet for it to show no evidence of that belief at all or that outworking of it? You see, James is dealing here with someone who's claiming to have a faith, but there's no deeds. And he illustrates this type of faith to us in verses 15 and 16. Do you see it there? James is great at illustrations, isn't he? Verse 15, he says, imagine or suppose for a moment that a brother or sister has some immediate need. They're without clothing or food. And when faced with this brother or sister, you say to them, verse 16, all the best, farewell, go well for you. And you do nothing about their physical needs. The question is, what good is that? What good is your faith if that is your response? And the point James is making here is that faith shows itself. It demonstrates itself through works or deeds. And so if you claim to have faith but have no deeds, what good is it? And that is what James is concluding in verse 17. Do you see it there? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. James' point is that is this, isn't it? You cannot claim to have a faith and then have no deeds or works accompanying it. And sadly, for many, there have been claims to have faith, but no deeds or works are evident. We live in an island, don't we, that was once termed the land of saints and scholars. That means that historically, people would have claimed to have a Christian faith or belief Sometimes that faith claim was based on believing certain things. I believe that, but there was no evidence. Or it was another way, it was based on, I went out to that church, and so it's cultural Christianity. And I believe, but there's no evidence. You see, the acid test for James is saying here that he cannot claim to have a faith and then have no deeds, because faith by itself is dead if it is not accompanied by action. It's hard to disagree with his logic, isn't it, here? That if you claim to have some sort of belief, that it has to have some sort of outworking or evidence of it or through the deeds and actions. And there is nothing 
probably as more driven in our culture and our times as seeing that worked out. For my generation, we want to see deeds worked out. You've got to show me that faith works. You've got to show me that this is not some dead belief system. It has to show its way out. Douglas Moo in his commentary says this, genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. And I guess for the son of the man of the story that we began with, who died in our opening story, he never saw evidence, works, or deeds in his father's life to back up the great statement that he was a man of faith. So a faith without deeds is dead. But James goes a little deeper and further in verses 19, 18 and 19. Do you see it there? Which I've titled, You Cannot Separate Faith and Works. What is happening in verse 18, do you see it there, is James deals with a question or somebody that comes in and asks, well, I have faith, you have deeds. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. The questioner is saying that the two can be separated, that one person could have faith and the other person could have deeds, and that's fine. And James' reply in the second half of verse 18, do you see it there? He says, show me your faith without deeds. It's impossible. How can I show you my faith if there's no evidence for it, if there's no deeds to accompany it? And then James said, I will show you my faith by my deeds. James is arguing that you cannot separate both faith and works. You cannot separate them. You cannot say, I have a faith, but there's no evidence. Or you cannot say, I, I do deeds, and there's no faith. And he illustrates this point in verse 19 by saying, do you see it there? Very famous verse. You believe there is one God, great, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. A person who believes that there is only one God, that is great, isn't it? It's a foundational teaching of the doctrine of God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But belief about God being one is shared by the demons. They too believe that there is one God, we see this throughout the gospel narratives, don't we? Especially in Mark's gospel, where demons recognize and acknowledge God and who he is. The demons believe. They're orthodox, if you want to put it that way, in their belief. But it doesn't impact their deeds. They don't worship God. They don't love him or follow after him. In fact, they go against him. This drives home the teaching of James that you cannot separate faith and works. You cannot say, I have faith and you have deeds as if they are exclusively different and separate. In trying to apply this, I, I, I'm gonna have a go. So often, particularly in reform circles, which PCI, Presbyterian Church in Ireland, would align itself to, we can hide behind the orthodoxy of belief and faith. We can take great security from it, even at times take pride in the fact that we believe in certain things. But the challenge for us is that the Christian faith is a faith that works out. It's like going to that gym. It's like that muscle that's been exercised. It's a faith that needs to be exercised into the nitty-gritty of life, the decision-making, the lifestyle, behavior, and patterns. It's a faith that produces, in the words of James, a hearing and doing faith. It is true religion, as James puts it. You see, our faith in the Lord Jesus cannot be divided from deeds. Our faith cannot be separated from works. They're inseparable. And when the Christian biblical faith is worked out, it's not useless or dead then. And so when it comes to trials, which we've been learning about, 
our faith is applied, we ask for wisdom to know how to live out in the midst of a trial. When temptations come into our lives that we were looking at earlier in James, again, we seek God's wisdom to know how to live, how to face that temptation, how to think about God. When it comes to favoritism, like we were looking at last week, we don't exercise that within the church. Why? Because it's not God's pattern. It's not the way he's dealt with us. But hearers of the word, but doers of it. And James is driving this thing home here this morning in saying that faith without works is dead. You cannot separate faith and works. And James says to those who claim to have faith, but no deeds, he says to those who think they can separate faith and works, do you see what he says to them? Look at verse 20, the very start of it. He says, you fool, you foolish person. He doesn't mix his words, does he? He tells them clearly, and he says, do you want evidence? Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Do you want proof that faith without works is useless? And what he goes on to do then in the rest of the verses from verse 21 onwards is give two examples of individuals in the Old Testament who through their faith showed their actions. And the first is Abraham. Do you see it there in verse 21? It says, was not father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Do you remember the life of Abraham in, in Genesis? It's a fascinating life. You know, he's a rogue on one level. Tells the emperor in Egypt, this is not my wife, it's my sister, so he doesn't get killed. And then comes out of Egypt with loads of money and, and belongings. In another one, then, he sleeps with his maidservant. All right, the boy is a rogue. And yet, he's held up here as an example of faith. And why is that? Because in Genesis 12, God called Abraham from a pagan lifestyle to follow him, promising that he would make him into a great nation in Genesis 12. The only snag was that he had no son. In Genesis 15, God promised a son despite the old age of Abraham and his wife Sarah. And listen to the promise. He says this to, God says this to Abraham, your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought Abraham outside and he said, look towards the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Isn't that lovely, the illustration? You're going to have a son, Abraham. You're going to have a great nation. Look up into the stars. See how much there is. That's as many as your descendants will be. And Abraham believed him, even though he'd no son at this moment in time. And he counted him as righteousness. This is Abraham. And Abraham trusted in those promises of God. And he had to wait 25 years for that promise to come through. And then Isaac comes. And Isaac means he laughs. And Isaac comes, and at last he had his own heir, the son that would bring the, all the stars, the descendants that was promised. And looking forward to that great offspring, Abraham was. And then you have Genesis 22. And what happens is the Lord asks him to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And here's what he says. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And we're told in scripture that Abraham obeyed and was about to kill his only son. 
the long-awaited son, the heir, the one that would bring all the descendants, and the Lord intervened. Abraham, Abraham, he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament gives us more insight into the faith of Abraham during the time when he was about to sacrifice Isaac. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who would receive the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive back Isaac from the dead. Isn't that amazing? So as he goes to sacrifice his son, he thinks, Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be obedient to you, believing, you know what? God could raise him again. And he does it by faith. And James uses Abraham here as an example of how faith and deeds work together, how he was considered righteous by his actions. And James sums up Abraham's life and his whole argument so well in verse 24. Have a look at it. Do you see it? Because this is the controversial bit. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Let me repeat that. A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. What do you think of that verse, verse 24? If we had dialogue, I'd love it now. <laughs> what do you think of that verse? You sit here today and go, ah, you know what? I couldn't give a toss. What do you think of that verse? Does it make you uncomfortable that a person is considered righteous by what they do, actions, rather than by faith alone? Surely Bloomfield Presbyterian has read these verses before from Romans. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, works. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed apart from the law that has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. It seems, doesn't it, that Paul's teaching here in Romans and James's words are at odds, even contradictory to one another about the very important question of how a person like Abraham how a person like you and me are made right before God. How are we made righteous, right relationship with God? How is that done? If we were to take a survey in here this morning, what would you say to your neighbor if said, look, I want to get right with God. How does that happen? Would you say to them, come to Bloomfield Presbyterian Church, say your prayers, read your Bible? Or would you, like Paul, say, you know what? No one becomes righteous by what they do. There's a righteousness, a goodness available to each and every one of us through faith, because that's what's going on here. Paul is saying righteousness comes from God through faith in Christ Jesus, and it's for all who believe. James is saying a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. There are seemingly two different angles here, two different ways, and many scholars have made this wider and greater, but it's not only an academic thing. That divergence has raged, but it's also amongst people like you and I. How can you and I be made right with God? Joan, for example, 
If you ask her, what, can I, what makes you right with God, Joan? She'll say, if I do my best, live like a good neighbor, paying my taxes, bringing up my kids well, and I hope my best will be good enough before God. Richard, on the other hand, will tell you, you're only made right with God through what Jesus has done for you on the cross of Calvary. We were never good enough, only sinners. And when we come to Jesus, trusting his sacrifice, his goodness, and his righteousness, then we're made right with God through faith. You see, Joan and Richard's understanding are two different ways to being declared right with God. And the question is this, it appears there's differences here with how Paul and James look at the teaching of justification. While James says it's by works or deeds that you're considered righteous, Paul says it's by faith. How do we understand this apparent contradiction or difference and what is right? James is writing, you need to understand this, is writing before Paul, and he is in no way going against the doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, James alludes to it already, doesn't he? Have a look at verse 23. Do you see it there? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, James is assuming with Abraham, and we'll see with Rahab as well, that they've already been made right with God. When did this happen? Back in Genesis 15, when God promised a son, and despite all the obstacles and barriers, Abraham believed God, and he counted to him as righteousness. This righteousness that is counted to Abraham in Genesis 15 is not a righteousness that he earned or that he lived according to a certain standard, but rather it is a righteousness that he was received by faith. You see, faith here is the means or vehicle by which Abraham believes God's promises, and it is counted to him. It is like being in a court scenario, and you're found guilty, and the judge turns around and he declares you innocent, right, righteous. It's a judicial statement of righteousness in Genesis 15. This righteousness is not Abraham's. Do you notice that? God gives it. God credits it to him. So there is a righteousness from God that only God gives, and it is mediated by faith, by trusting the promises of God. Turn with me, will you, for a few moments, just to Romans chapter 4. You'll find it on page 1131. So Romans chapter 4. And in Romans 4, it here describes what was happening in Genesis 15 to Abraham at that time. In Romans chapter 4 and then verse 18. And here's what it says. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's room was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, that is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also to whom God will credit righteousness for those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. What a beautiful passage. 
that Abraham believes the promises of God and it's credited to him as being right with him in right relationship. But do you see the link? The link is also true for you and I. How are you made right with God? It is by believing the promises of God, believing in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. You see, Abraham has been made right, declared righteous before God by believing in the promises. And so Abraham is made righteous through faith alone. Then James, on the other hand, is taking at these brothers and sisters in Christ to whom he is writing to, and Abraham, and in a few minutes, Rahab, he's assuming that they're already being made right before God by faith. And so James's righteousness, or justify here, which is mentioned in verse 21 and 24, has a different meaning to Paul's. Douglas Mood says this, justify or righteousness for James means to demonstrate to be right. Richard Bauckham in his commentary puts it like this, which is very helpful. He said, God had already declared Abraham righteous on account of his faith in Genesis 15, 6, but this verdict is confirmed when his faith is tested and it proves itself in Genesis 22. And if we understand righteousness like this, to prove right or to demonstrate rightness, it makes perfect sense then for James to say in verse 24 that the outworking of saving faith has to show itself in works and not faith alone. It's his major argument, isn't it? That you cannot claim to be right with God without showing it in the way that you live. And we see this understanding of righteousness in the life of Abraham, the great father Abraham. But what about the prostitute Rahab? In verse 25, in the same way it says, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? She's righteous because of her actions. But if you look at Joshua chapter 2, you will see that she believed in God. She believed that God was going to take the land and her actions spoke of her right standing with God. That's why Hebrews mentions it like this. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She believed the Lord. She stood in right standing with him. And then her actions with the spies and what she did to help them showed that she was right with God. Her actions were an expression of her faith. And James highlights through Rahab that our faith is not just an intellectual thing. I believe God, and it doesn't have any impact, but rather her works demonstrate her right standing before God. Her life is summed up so well in this, isn't it? Rahab's sort of faith puts all life under contribution. Her house, her resources, her personal safety, all put under consideration because she believed and was right before God. That's a risky faith, isn't it? This is the reality of a living and saving faith that James demonstrates through the life of Abraham and Rahab. It's not a faith without deeds. It's not a faith that separates itself from works. Rather, it is a faith which shows the right standing before God through obedience of works and actions. These are great verses. And they make us ask the following questions, don't they, of ourselves this morning as we conclude. What kind of faith do you claim to have? Do you believe in God? Does your deeds match that obedience, that rightness that you have before him? Does your faith demonstrate itself? Do you know the difference between a dead and useless faith and a saving and obedient faith? 
because faith without deeds is no good. You can't be like Jack, great man of faith. The son says, I saw no evidence of that faith. We cannot separate. Faith and works cannot be separated. We cannot say, I have faith. You have deeds. Let's stick it at that. No. James says the two have to correspond. Faith demonstrates itself in works. It shows a living, active, and obedient faith. And that obedience is to the Word of God and what it says in the life of Abraham and Rahab. You see that worked out. The beauty of biblical faith is that it is an active, vibrant trusting in the Lord Jesus to make us right with God, and then that righteousness is demonstrated by our actions, our deeds, and our works. Let me finish with this quote from Alex Matir. He says this, the life of faith is more than a private transaction of the heart with God. It is a life of active obedience or active consecration seen in obedience, which holds nothing back from God and the concern which holds nothing back from human need. I felt very challenged as I was preparing the sermon this morning, especially as ministers, because you have a knowledge of a certain belief system. And you know what? You can hide behind it by not demonstrating that faith in your actions. Folks, we don't want to be a church that says we believe in God and then our actions show no correspondence to that at all. Maybe there's some of you here this morning and you're going, am I right with God? Have I got this righteousness? How am I seeking to be right with God? Is it through my actions, through a good life? God says no one can be made right with him because of those things. It is through faith in the Lord Jesus, and then that faith is worked out in works and deeds. This passage in James must say to us, I need to confess. I need to confess where there is the division between faith and deeds. I say I believe God, but this is my life. Maybe we need to confess the fact that I sometimes go either way. I say I have a faith, but then it has no demonstration at all. But we also need to praise God, don't we? That there is a righteousness available from him for each and every one of us, just like Rahab, just like Abraham. And you know what? He wants us to live it out as his people so that it shows that we've been made right with him through our works and our deeds. Let's take a moment to respond to God's word this morning. Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank you that your son can make us right with you. We thank you for that perfection, that goodness, that righteousness that is available, not because we are good, not because of anything that we can earn or do to achieve it, but Lord, we take hold of it by taking hold of your promises. Father, help us by faith to come into a right relationship with yourself because of all that Jesus has done. And for those of us who have experience that for those of us who know what it is to be right with God we praise you father for it and we pray and confess this morning that our lives and our actions our works our deeds have not always corresponded to that right standing before you father forgive us forgive us for those actions those words those thoughts that don't demonstrate our right standing with you 
And Father, this morning, we thank you for this passage. We pray as a church that we would be the people of God who believe in you and demonstrate it through our actions and words so that our faith is not useless, it is not dead, but, but rather, Father, it is a living, active, continually trusting in all that you have done for us. Lord, forgive us. Lead us on, we pray, to be the people of God that you want to mold and shape us into. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's join together in prayer for others this morning. Father God, your word says that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we know that there is no changing in your character or your ways. And Lord, on this morning, we rejoice in that biblical truth that you are constant that you won't change in ways or character or nature. And Lord, we rejoice in that because the world we live in is in constant flux, constant change and uncertainty. And Lord, we want to pray for Germany today. We want to pray for Afghanistan and particularly for Munich and for Kabul. And Father, we pray for those caught up in the shooting at the shopping center in Munich. Lord, we pray for those families who've lost loved ones. We pray for the injured. Father, we pray for the ongoing uncertainty that surrounds the European continent at this moment in time. And Lord, we ask that you'll help us to pray. Have mercy on those who are perpetrators. We know that by your grace that you restrain evil and you dwarf the plans of those who are set on destruction. Father, we thank you this morning for your common grace, and we continue to pray for Germany and for Afghanistan. Father, what we pray for them, we pray for those in Nice who have been affected by all that has happened over these last number of weeks. And Father, we thank you that one day everything will be put to right, that you will reign supreme where peace will permeate all of life. And that, Lord, you will dwell with your people forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, today we thank you for the many summer teams, beach missions, and holiday clubs that are happening across this island over the summer. Thank you for the walkway summer scheme that has just concluded. And we pray for those children that came along, that they would be drawn back into the holiday Bible club at the end of August. Father, do a good work in their lives and in their family lives, we pray. And Lord, wherever your people are seeking to share the gospel this summer, whether at work, whether on summer missions or across the world, will you open the hearts of boys and girls, young people, adults, to the gospel message for your glory and honor. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.